Wait a minute. Haven't I seen you before? I know your face. Get out, or shall I call my servant? You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. I knew there was something wrong. They're dead. They're finished. There was a time in this business when they had the eyes of the whole wide world. But that wasn't good enough for them. Oh, no. They had to have the ears of the world, too. So they opened their big mouths, and out came talk. 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 That's where the popcorn business comes in. Buy yourself a bag and plug up your ears. Look at them in the front offices. The masterminds. They took the idols and smashed them. The Fairbanks, the Gilberts, the Valentinos. And what we got now? Some nobodies. Don't blame me. I, I'm not an executive, just a writer. You are writing words, words, more words. But you've made a rope of words and strangled this business. <laughs> but there's a microphone right there to catch the last gurgles. And Technicolor to photograph the red swollen tongue. You wake up the monkey. Get out! Max! Next time I'll bring my autograph album along. Or maybe a hunk of cement and ask for your footprint. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the show. We got a good one today. Yes, indeed, listeners. My name's Pete. And I'm Scott. And, and these, these are, are the, the movies, movies that, that made us gay. gay. Yay! Classics edition. Yes, indeed. Golden Age. This is a very special episode. This is, is kind of our first foray into classic cinema. Is it now? I, I mean, this is definitely the oldest movie that we've done. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to... I think that maybe Black Christmas... <laughs> from the 70s. From the 70s has <laughs> been the oldest movie that we've wow, done. Wow, that's intense. We have an unreleased Psycho episode. So, yeah, we watched Sunset Boulevard from 1950, directed by Billy Wilder. Yes, indeed. Released August 10th, 1950, with our good friend Dennis Griffin. Dennis, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Thanks for having me. And, you know, to all those listeners out there in the dark, I'm so happy that I'm doing this. So it's one of my absolute favorite movies. Awesome, awesome. Same here. Definitely. Well, I mean, where do we even begin with Sunset Boulevard? (laughs) So we had a few movies that we were kind of bouncing back and forth. And you mentioned Sunset Boulevard. And I'm like, oh. Perfect. Like, this can be our first classic movie. I love this movie. It has a very uh, special place in a lot of gay men's heart, as as well as just moviegoers in general. So I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah. um, Why don't we... We like to talk about our kind of introduction to these movies, Dennis, as our guest. guest. Um, Why don't you talk a little bit about your history with Sunset Boulevard? Do you remember where you first saw it? I do. Um, so for me, this is a movie, this movie particularly, is my Desert Island movie. It's a movie that I could watch on a daily basis and never get tired of it. Yeah. Ever. Same. Uh, I know it word for word. It still surprises me. It still chokes me out of, up at times, makes me laugh at times. Um, so the first time I probably, thinking back, the first time I probably watched this was with was probably shown to me by a first boyfriend is what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, young gay out in the world living in West Hollywood Mm -hmm. 
and having an older boyfriend who was like, here, we're going, I'm going to show you a movie. And it was Sunset Boulevard. So I'm thinking that's what it was. It was probably the first time I saw it was probably, um, you know, a first boyfriend showing it to me. Right. And he was showing it to me because of kind of the camp factor. And then of course, being that it's such a brilliant film. Yeah. Um, did you, have you seen the Broadway musical version? I've not seen it in person. I've seen clips mm-hmm. um, here and there. Um, and it's, uh, well, it's Andrew Lloyd Webber. So yes. that, you know, <laughs> and you can take that as, as you want. Yeah. You can either take that as, oh my God, I love Andrew Lloyd Webber, or it's ridiculous because it's Andrew Lloyd Webber. So there's those aspects to the Broadway musical. Um, and, you know, and there's some amazing songs in it, but yeah. Um, I think the Broadway musical is an interesting take on this story. Yeah, actually, you're, you're absolutely right about the whole Andrew Lloyd Webber aspect. We were just doing some research today. You know, we watched the movie last night. We I we have a, an old DVD that has some, you know, documentary stuff on there. And we were just watching clips from the musical, the Glenn clips. Not we didn't yes. watch it. we didn't watch any Patty clips. You gotta watch the Glenn clips. <laughs> um, but you know we we're listening to with one look, which is the big song that she sang that Norma sings mm-hmm. from the scene that we just listened to when she first meets Joe, and we're listening to it. And Scott goes, "Why does this sound familiar?" And I was like, "Because it's Andrew Lloyd Webber. It just sounds like Phantom. It just sounds like Phantom. <laughs> it just sounds like a yeah, song that Christine exactly. would have sung in Phantom. Yeah." yeah. Um. I remember uh, in my high school drama class, uh, I was taught by Brother Cecil, and it was one of my, it was probably my favorite class in high school, and uh, we were reading, we're probably reading Romeo and Juliet or some Shakespeare, and that was around the time that the show was first coming to or being announced that it was coming to L.A., and it was. All the drama with Faye Dunaway's casting and subsequent firing and all of that. <laughs> and Could you imagine? Oh, my God. It would have been legendary Faye. for both good and bad. Oh, uh, I know. Yeah. I mean, who, who, know, like, who knows what the thought process was behind that? Can, like, it makes sense in theory. Well, the reason she was fired was because she can't sing, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So did they think to like ask, hey, maybe like she would style really well as Norma, yeah. but yeah, bitch can't sing. Yeah. But, um, you know, Brother Cecil kind of, I feel like he, you know, took me under his wing because we were kindred spirits in drama class in this, in this school full of like rough and tumble, like East Side kids, you know, uh. He asked me if I liked musicals, and I was like, I think so. And I told him that I had seen Phantom of the Opera, and he's like, well, you know, Sunset Boulevard is coming to town. And we we would talk about movies a lot in this drama class. And he told me about the movie, and he gave me the tape of the soundtrack to the musical, having not seen oh. it or the movie. And I listened to it and I was kind of like, this is weird. It's very, you know, it was super Andrew Lloyd Webber. I was in high school. I was like, I want to listen to like Smashing Pumpkins or whatever. Um, 
but it always gave, it always had this gave, made this impression of I should see this movie. Brother Cecil really likes it, and you know, and all of the buzz about the show going on. And finally, when I did grab uh, a DVD of it in my early twenties, I was just like, "This is amazing!" <laughs> you know, this performance is is crazy, but so memorable and i just like fell in love with norma and gloria swanson and that house and you know every every aspect of uh william holden just being so dreamy in this oh amazing (laughs) not really knowing him from anything maybe like lucy like i remembered him from lucy like i remembered the name and then just kind of being blown away by like every aspect of this movie and just I think I just went out and bought it right after I rented it because I was like no I I need to own this it's too good Scott when did you first see it so I remember when I was a kid uh do you remember the AFI Institute's top 100 American films that they would do TV specials oh, and they would uh, cart in all what? of these uh, celebrities filmmakers directors old Hollywood stars and they would all talk about all of these famous movies that ended up on the top 100. And yeah. I remember them talking about this movie and just kind of thinking, like, mental note, like, I need to watch this. Because, yeah. of course, you've heard the I'm ready for my close-up Mr. DeMille, but you don't really know the context of it. You know lines that Norma is saying, but you might not be familiar with Sunset Boulevard. So I think I didn't watch this movie until I was about 20 years old, so about the same age as you two. And I was going to school at the time at Eastern Washington University in Cheney in Washington, and there was just nothing to do. So I would just always go to the public library on campus and rent old movies. Like, that's where I rented, like, Antonioni's Blow Up, some, like, like fancy schmancy, like, like, Godard movies. Just kind of me trying to fancy myself like a cinephile. Right. Because I was just thinking, like, I, I just need to watch all the classics. And that's where I rented Sunset Boulevard. And I watched it in my dorm room. Yeah. And I loved it. <laughs> yeah. And it's still a movie that I go back to a lot. Yeah. I think I watch it every year, at least. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I kind of find myself watching it around Halloween. <laughs> well, because it's, it's, you know, it's a horror film to a point. Yeah, and I was thinking about that last night, you know, um, Brother Cecil in high school also showed us Streetcar Named Desire, and he really emphasized, you know, that the ending of that movie, she essentially, you know, loses her mind, you know, and just how tragic it is. And, you know, at the end of this movie, it's like... It's this iconic, you know, she's walking down the stairs and she's just kind of lost it. And But she's killed a man. Like, <laughs> she's just murdered someone and the police and, you know, the media and everybody's there. And it just ends. And you're just like, what's going to happen to Norma? <laughs> like, right. It is and scary. that's what's so great about I think this movie, well, you know, no, uh, you know, no spoilers is that <laughs> the movie opens with, with him being dead yeah. floating in the pool. So, you know, and I don't know if you read about the original 
the original way they shot it was that when the movie opened, it was him on a slab at the coroner's office and his body talking to other dead people. And there's this whole conversation with dead people in the morgue. And I guess when they, they, um, previewed it like in Illinois, somewhere in the middle or middle of Ohio, they previewed this movie. Um, the audience was like in laughter. And so they're like, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> and so that's why they open with him floating in the pool. Yeah. Um, that was was interesting. That beautiful shot of uh, William holding in the pool, too, that it's shot below. And you see him floating. Right. I think that right. – I think his body floating in the pool and kind of his character acknowledging that that's me in there and all that, that gives mm-hmm. it this very, like – film noir-ish quality you know that, oh, yeah. that the rest of the tone of the movie you kind of forget about but really yeah when it, the book ends of how it starts and how it ends are so tragic and then you yeah. just have all this craziness in between i remember when i was a teenager and watching american beauty i think i remember my stepdad just calling out this movie is fully ripping off sunset boulevard in its opening scene. Oh, that's right. Because American Beauty opens up with Dead Lester and his voiceover. Yeah, I never thought of that either. Um, And uh, stealing from Billy Wilder. (laughs) Dennis, you and I both grew up in uh, the greater Los Angeles area. Um, I watched Mm -hmm. this movie and I I do not work in the entertainment industry other than being on a podcast, but I have a lot of friends who do and did. And, you know, when we were kids, that's kind of what we did in our early twenties. That's where we went out for fun was to go into Hollywood and all that. So seeing all of these locations and seeing all this movie business talk, I don't know. I just always felt like, Oh, I get this a little bit more because I'm from here. Did you ever get that when you watched this kind of movie? Oh, completely. Right. I mean, you know, being you know being a pretentious little gay boy in uh in living and growing up in Los Angeles and then in my early 20s living in West Hollywood yeah and being shown yeah. this film and then you know just kind of the this the you know enigma of of Hollywood itself and you know the 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 machine that it is. I mean, every time I drive by, you know, the Bronson Gates for Paramount. Yeah, I always think of Sunset. Boulevard you always think of the scene because you have the. You always think of that scene. Yeah. So, or if you drive by, um, you know, Schwab where Schwab's pharmacy was, which I believe was like Sunset and Vine. Area. I believe oh, I was Schwab's that. is where uh, the Sunset Five used to be in that little shopping area oh. of right at the beginning of the Sunset Strip where uh, TJ's is now. I think that's where that exactly. space was, just down the just down the street right. from the Chateau. Yeah, right. So it's just it's it's yeah. There is that kind of um, mystique of Hollywood I when think- you watch this film. I think the actual apartment building that Joe Gillis, the William Holden character, I think that's still there. The Aldo Nito yeah, apartment. They're still there. 
just right off, yeah, right off of uh, what is it off Franklin? I used to have that apartment when we mm-hmm. first started going out. That was just in those hills. It's right below the reservoir. Yeah, and there's a sign that says Aldo Nido. Yeah, just a lot of Hollywood today looks so crazy different than it did when we were like young and going out. You know, there's all these buildings oh, popping up. You know multi-use buildings or whatever, but there's still a lot of it that does look exactly the same. There's that, that shot where he goes to grab his car from the garage or from the parking lot. That parking lot's still there. And it looks like you you know exactly where he is, you know? Um, yeah, that's like the Multibon. I think that's like the Multibon Theater. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Which is like, I think, Argyle or something. Mm-hmm. That's exactly where that is, where he's parked his car behind the shoe shine yeah. shop. And then the Altanito, I think, is yeah, it's right there below Franklin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so crazy how we, and we were the type of kids. I mean, I was the type of kid that when we would see movies that were set in L.A., we would kind of go out and look for the locations and just you know try and find, try and track things down. And uh, this movie just really lent itself to that. Uh, Norma's house, unfortunately, none of us have ever. We're seen. always whenever we're like driving to the Grove or something to go see a movie, we're always obsessed with that area of Wilshire that borders Hancock Park where her house was. And I believe right. that uh John Paul Getty's uh Wife. one of his wives bought the bought the estate and I think it was just vacant at the time when they were shooting this movie in 1949 or 1950. And then they later shot Rebel Without a Cause there, and then it was torn down in the late 50s, probably just a year and a half after they shot Rebel there. And there's even uh, – they built that pool for Sunset Boulevard I saw on the DVD. Huh. But it couldn't hold water. Like it was just uh, – or I, I don't think it could really be f- – like a functioning pool, even though there is a scene with well, they water filled it up with it. water, but, it, they, but yeah. they didn't have it connected to like a pump mm-hmm. to circulate water. So, um, and there's that scene yeah. in Rubble where they're hanging out by the pool too. Is it empty in Rubble? With that it's, it's empty in Rubble. Yep. Yeah. And now so I know I'm like, yet Rubble without a cause. Oh and, yeah. And um, now I'm gonna have to watch it because knowing that it's the same, they should the you know same shooting location. Now I'm have to check that out. Yeah, and to see to see the exterior of the house in color. Mm-hmm. Yep, that would be cool too. Um, I believe now it is like a gas station in that area of Wilshire. No, I think it's like a building, just like a some weird office building. Oh, they said on the DVD that it was a gas station. I don't. But, think, you know. I don't think that's correct because mm-hmm. I used to work right up there. <laughs> but um, so we have to talk about. Gloria Swanson. Yes. And the this insane, incredible performance that she delivers in this movie. Um, I, I just don't feel like... Well, I mean, obviously, you couldn't get a performance like that now. But there's just something about actors that came from the studio system that they all kind of knew how to do a lot of things. They weren't just actors. Like, they, they could dance, they could sing, or they could play an instrument, or... Do all of those things. And Gloria Swanson kind of showed in this movie, even though she, the whole idea was that she just came from silent pictures and, and Norma's career was based on her face, but she really did know how to do a lot. Like there's, there's really fun stuff that she gets to showcase in this movie with, with her performance. And I love how, how beautiful she is, how teeny tiny she looks next to William Holden, Mm -hmm. you know, um, 
I mean, I can't, I can't say enough about, about Gloria Swanson and all those pictures of her around the house that are actual pictures of, of her from the, from the twenties and thirties. That's what's so crazy about the, about her in this specific movie is that they used her old films and they used her old photos and it, you know, the role of Norma Desmond wasn't really Gloria Swanson. I mean, she was much different of a person. Um, but to use all that, be able to use all that for the role is so crazy. Yeah. And then to do little things like them, uh, um, kind of showcasing her, her comedic timing yeah. and things like that in it are just so great. It's what makes the, the performance so amazing. I was reading that when they were writing it, it's speculated that kind of a big inspiration for Norma was Mary Pickford because she sort of had this reclusive reputation. And also a lot of uh, silent film stars started to have mental disorders <laughs> around this time. That huh. was that was kind of gossiped a lot in magazines. Um, it would have been crazy to picture this movie with Mae West and Marlon Brando, because I believe that <laughs> Mae West was maybe showing the script or offered to it. She wanted too many script demands, and Billy Wilder said no. So, yeah. Mae West as Norma Desmond. That would have been wild. Yeah, there was a lot of um, women that were approached for the role. Um, Greta Garbo Mm -hmm. was approached and said, absolutely not. Um, Norma Shear. Yeah, and um, Pola Negra, who they thought her Polish, uh, her accent was way too thick for it to pull it off. So they they couldn't use her. So that you know, it's fascinating that they zeroed in on on uh, on Gloria um, Swanson and for it. Supposedly, you know? George Cooker uh, recommended her to Billy Wilder. It's what I find fascinating is that, and they say it in the movie. Uh, she, you know, she's supposed to be this washed up movie star she was so big you know 20 years ago she made tons of movies um but joe says to her at one point she's 50 yeah 50 yeah (laughs) and that's the thing about how people age now as opposed you know even when you watch the golden girls they're all in their mid-50s they're not retirees in the Golden Girls. They're all working except for Ma. They all have jobs and are and are you know have not retired yet, and they are in their mid fifties when that show starts. And in this, Norma is fifty. Just to give a little perspective, Nicole Kidman, I just googled it, is fifty three years old. There you go. So yeah. <laughs> well, look at look at Zalo. Yeah, Hustlers. Yeah, she's fifty in Hustlers. <laughs> fifty year old woman. <laughs> In the movie Hustlers, the equivalent of Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, the differences, you know. Yeah, of how definitely, I think the the film industry has come way for much much further in that acceptance of women in their you know. But it's just it's it's nuts. Yeah, but uh, and I mean, she does to an extent. She does look a little bit more mature. Like if you were to put. Gloria Swanson in 1950 standing next to JLo of today, you, <laughs> they wouldn't look like they were yeah. the same age. 
But at the same time, she doesn't look like a little old lady. She has you know? beautiful skin. Yeah, she has great no. skin. She's very glamorous. And what I find interesting is about Norma and Gloria is the whole idea that when the talkies came around, a lot of silent film stars fell by the wayside. And, you know, if you watch Singing in the Rain they would have you think that it was because their acting styles didn't match up, right? They were right. not necessarily remembering lines or they were just talking gibberish or their voices were crazy or they had thick Eastern European accents like Pola Negra. Um, but Gloria Swanson's amazing in this. She's got a great voice. She's got that mid-Atlantic delivery. So I wonder why it was that She worked her, a little bit, yeah. but not a lot, though. Yeah. Maybe it was just the, the roles kind of dried up, too, because mm-hmm. she got to a certain age. So it wasn't just that she didn't make the transition, but it was a combination of her aging out of the system as well, right? Yeah, and then she landed on a role that she just ended up either getting typecast as, and she just never found anything else that she felt like she could be, that could, like, top it, too. Sure. I mean, she was just fully playing herself in Airport 1975 in the 70s. <laughs> oh, you mean after yeah. Sunset Boulevard? After Sunset Boulevard, yes. I have to say... Now, I wonder if it would have been different if she had won the Academy Award. Oh, we'll, we'll have a big year. discussion with that later, too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely get into that at some point. But, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's... And, and William Holden was 31. At the time. That's insane. He looks, fo- major, he looks 40. Given major daddy vibes in this movie. <laughs> oh, my. I mean, in, in the uh, one of the things I love in this movie is the very kind of subtle um, nods to their relationship. That they're full on, you know. Yeah. We were, we were talking about that earlier today. I, I was saying, like... I guess it's the implication, and this is a movie from the 50s, so they're not going to show them going to bed together. But, you know, in a lot of the special features that we were watching and in a lot of things that I read on, you know, IMDb trivia, a lot of times people refer to Joe Gillis as a gigolo. Yeah. You know, and actors turning down the role, Fred McMurray turning down the role because he didn't want to play a gigolo. Montgomery Cliff turned it, I believe, was cast and then and then backed out. And I'm just thinking it's it's interesting because to modern audiences they don't spell it out that they're sleeping together but clearly they are. And he's just not comfortable with it. I mean one of the the yummy scenes with him is when he's swimming. Oh my god. And he gets out of the pool. <laughs> and he's got, you know, the furry chest and his body is like tight. Yeah. And you're like Damn, and you you know normally all like the suits and stuff. I mean, he's a good looking man, but then you see him with his shirt off, and you're like, wow. And she's so comfortable with drying him off that yeah. you're like, hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or even when she's doing her little follies number, and then she jumps on the couch where Joe is lying down, and she just like jumps right next to him, and they're so close and intimate in that scene. Yeah, exactly. She kind of snuggles in next to him, and you're like, okay. Oh, I see what's going on. Oh, they yeah. are fucking. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And the way, because at first he's very much like, oh, stop saying we. There's no we. But, you know, when he s- says stuff about when 
the repo guys finally do take his car and he's like, I need a car. Like, you know, when you can't have a car, you know, you can't not have a car in Los Angeles. It's like your legs cut off. And she's like, oh, we have a car. We have a car, you know, yep. and it's like that very, she's, she's just thinking of them as this, like this coupled, you know, this coupled unit. Um, I love that car, by the way. <laughs> so cool. Oh, what is it? Uh, it's an Asada Freschini. Asada Freschini. <laughs> I still can't say it. Probably, so were you, yeah. you were looking up about the car today. I did. I was, I was looking up, I was fascinated by this car because I was like, what the hell is she saying? Like, what kind of car? I've never heard of it. So Asada Freschini is an Italian car company. Um, they were totally like a luxury car company for the twenties through about the fifties. Like you probably had to request one for it to get made. Well, not only that, they were all completely handmade, like, uh, like Rolls Royce. And they were, their big thing was that like no two would be the same. So that's so cool. Two Asada Friskini. There would be no two Asada Friskini car owners that had the same model because every car is customized. And she tells, so would like the today's equivalent be like a DeLorean? <laughs> yeah, I but I feel like DeLoreans were a little bit more cookie cutter than that. Um, right, yes. So when she tells them it's a, it's an Asada Friskini, I paid twenty eight thousand dollars cash, and you're like, what the hell? Okay, so the model of the car that she has because they were so unique you can look up the car and it has its own wikipedia page so <laughs> the car was from 1929 it was in a limousine style and if she paid twenty eight thousand dollars in 1929 that car would have been four hundred and sixteen thousand dollars wow <laughs> oh my god I was wondering what the 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 you know modern yeah. equivalent of price would be. The whole that's amazing. The whole thing was upholstered in leopard skin and had and had one of those gold plated car phones. That's what that's what Joe says. Uh, the Sunset Boulevard car has been on display at the Museo Nazionale della Automobile in Italy since 1972, and Norma Desmond's initials are still emblazoned on the rear doors of the car, and you can see it when. Max opens the door. You can see the ND stenciled onto the wow. car. Yeah. And it was owned in the 80s by the uh, entrepreneur who founded Domino's Pizza, but it has since been donated to this Italian auto museum. That's amazing. So Norma's spending $400,000 on a car. In 1928, but she owns four. She owns four blocks downtown. She's got oil and in Bakersfield, Bakersfield pumping, pumping, pumping. Love that line. <laughs> I'm rich. <laughs> that's, that's another really great scene with her. Her dr- line delivery. It's yeah. a really great line delivery. Which is, I'm rich. <laughs> She's a little tipsy from the champagne yep. and and. I've you know I've watched this movie with tons of different friends, mm-hmm. and our mutual friend Marlene. Mm-hmm. Every time we watch, that's her absolute favorite scene in the whole movie, <laughs> and it's the way she says when she says, "And I have oil, oil in Bakersfield pumping, pumping," 
and she pumps her foot up and down. Yeah. <laughs> and just that's Marlene's favorite. Uh, <laughs> part of the we got to get Marlene on this show. Yeah, definitely. That is that is an amazing, amazing scene, but it kind of gives you a little bit of backstory on. Oh, OK. Like, because maybe you think. On the one hand, you could think, well, maybe Norma's just kind of land rich and she just has this house because the house seems to be kind of in decay from the outside. You know, the tennis court is sagging. The pool's empty. The palm trees are all kind of she just falling doesn't, down. She just doesn't pay a yard guy. Yeah, she just doesn't bother to pay because she's not having parties anymore. Right. And when you only have Max working the entire house. Max. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Out the pool. Yeah, he's not climbing those palm trees, pulling out the dead, yeah, <laughs> the dead <No>. palm fronds. <laughs> yeah, for sure. This house always reminds me of when I go on walks in old San Marino. I do my little loop, and I look at some mm-hmm. of the entryways of these old fucking houses in yeah. San Marino, and just how they're just sort of open to the air, of just their courtyard into the house. So cool, right? Yeah, we were noticing last night, I guess I'm assuming this is kind of like a Spanish-style house, and we were noticing last night that the front door is just kind of like this villa. It's just a gate. There's not like a proper door. It's just a gate that Max opens and closes. Unless we just can't see it, and it's always open. No, I think you're right. I I can't remember if there's glass within that gate. I don't think so. It looks like it's just just a wrought iron kind of gate. Yeah. Which is crazy because today people would be worried of like all, you know, all pollution and mm-hmm. dust and all this crap, you know, yeah. flying into their living room. Yeah, but it's probably true. It probably was just open. Yeah, you know, it was just a gate. Yeah, that and, opened up into the living room. And at the time, Hollywood and that part of Sunset Boulevard where it was supposed to be set was probably a lot more rural. You know, just yeah, big fancy houses. You know, so you didn't sort really of have the, to worry. the foothills of the Hollywood Hills. Yeah. Kind of going into where now UCLA is. I'm wondering if it's there or if it's like kind of more like West Hollywood, Beverly Hills area. I don't know exactly where it's supposed to be set, that block that the house is supposed to be. I don't know. Yeah, I know it was on Roll. Yeah, the actual one is, was right, like. It's on Roll. Yeah. But the house itself, I'm thinking, or, you know, in the, the movie, yeah. the, the block is that is it's that like windy area above ucla yeah that's kind of like heading into bel-air sort of where the playboy mansion is Mm -hmm. yeah exactly so i want to talk about there's uh, a little there's um when joe first comes to the house Mm -hmm. and he he sees norma and we discover that norma's pet chimp has died (laughs) i am obsessed with the backstory of goddamn norma desmond and this chimp she's just (laughs) been living in this house with this chimpanzee that would probably like eat off your face (laughs) i want to see that movie and i love the i love his his line where he says you know the 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 great grandson of king kong yeah you know, yeah, had and to the be a- bedroom, that shot, that first shot when you, when he's walking into the bedroom, he's following her into the bedroom mm-hmm. and you see the, you know, the chimp is on the massage table covered in a shawl and there's that crazy like gondola bed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
and and there and the room is dripping in like sashes mm-hmm. and curtains and all this stuff and it's just such an amazing you know scene and yeah that the, the chimp and that you know he liked to poke at fires with a stick <laughs> <laughs> i want the coffin to be white specially lined with satin <laughs> and then they then a guy comes and drops off this baby coffin and they bury the chimp in the yard like it's no like it's an everyday thing yes that image of joe looking out the window and norma standing there and doesn't she have an umbrella because it doesn't start she has to, a candelabra she has a candelabra, she has a candelabra and she's helping uh him carry the max, casket yeah and then mask just max just gets in the Gets in the ground and he, and, he, in the ground. and he puts the and he puts the coffin in the ground. I need to get like a snapshot of that, like tattooed on my chest. That is amazing. That's sh- those shots. <laughs> you know, and they can't be zoned for that. Yeah, you know? no, Norma doesn't care. <laughs> That's what she says to Joe. I don't care. <laughs> I'm Norma Desmond. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Now, would she have the chimp like in a tuxedo? You know, I like so. like Max matching with Max, like in a tuxedo, like smoking a cigar. I mean, some I, someone down the line. I don't. I mean, this could either be a really good thing or a really bad thing. Someone should should do a prequel. Oh my god, Norman, this chimp. <laughs> They're like, like so we have some backstory on yeah. the, you know that her her living with this chimp and Max and yeah, you know the. the the four other husbands. And, yeah, I mean, maybe like you know. Rudolph Valentino gave her the chimp. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it may or may right. not, it may or may not have worn tuxedos, but it definitely smoked cigars. You know, that chimp smoked cigars. It's the fifties. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I would like to see, uh, in a prequel, Norma and the chimp and Max, just like solving mysteries. Maybe I would, yeah. like, I would like, I would like that. <laughs> Desmond Mystery Hour. <laughs> yeah. that, yeah, that Just really... Max chauffeuring the chimp and Norma in the Hollywood Hills. Them just sitting in the back In the seat. back of this car. Yeah. Um, oh, the other thing about going back to the car really quickly, the Asada Fraschini. Um, he mentions that it has a car phone, a gold-plated car phone. But what I saw and what I looked up in research is that it's to call the driver because the car is so big that there was a, a glass divider between the front seat and the cab. And the cab was so big that you would have had to have leaned forward for Max to hear you. And, she, and she's back there almost like on a couch. It's like a limousine setup. So she could talk into this little phone handset. And if you notice, Max had that little horn next to him that he was just like a trumpet. He was kind of leaned right. his head over and talked into that, and that sound would go into the little handset that she had. So it was a phone from the the front seat to the back seat because the car was that long. So because Scott was just like a car phone, what the hell? <laughs> like, but yeah, it was right. Just, and, and whoever owned that it would spend that much money on a car like that. Yeah, there's no they're gonna scooch no. themselves up to that device. right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, the way way back like, of that thing. Who, Where's the finest men's shop in Los Angeles? Yeah. Let's go there. Yeah. She's not doing that. She's no. not going to take the time to do that. So, yeah, having a gold-plated car phone, yeah. that's kind of crazy. I love the attendant at the men's shop. The suit salesman Amazing. is like my favorite character oh, in the great. movie. 
It's like, since the lady's paying for it, get the vicuna. So I, when I watch this movie now, and I've lived in Los Angeles for 10 years now, so I'm a transplant. Much like Joe, even though I didn't really uh, care to make it in the entertainment industry, but I kept wondering... <laughs> Uh, me from 10 years ago, or maybe me even 10 years from now, maybe I would just leave Pete. But if I was offered this situation from Norma, like, am I taking it? Would you do it? And I'm kind of thinking like, I think I would take it. (laughs) Like, it looks like a pretty, it looks like a pretty good deal to me. Yeah, that is a setup that you want. Yeah. I mean, what does he have to lose? He is, his car is getting repossessed. He's pretty much like cut ties with his agent after he told him to like screw off for not giving him the, you know, a loan. He's ready to go back to Ohio and to go sit at the old, you know, at the newspaper in Ohio. He's ready to just leave Hollywood behind. And now he's a kept man, gold plated cigarette case, mad about the boy. I love the inscription in the in the cigarette case. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, this is like some like sugar daddy fantasies. Yeah, for sure. Uh, oh, oh. And if I, mean, I had some rich old gay man who works, yeah. in, you know, was in the Hollywood industry, approached me and was like, "Help me, you know, write this script." I would be a heartbeat. Oh yeah, I would drop everything mm-hmm. on it. <laughs> sure, no problem. Oh, oh, you want to keep that scene in? It's back. <laughs> oh, oh, we have that clip. I love this. Is one of my favorite moments of the movie. Oh yes, yes, we do. Let's let's take a listen to this one. What's that? Just a scene I threw up. What scene? One where you go to the slave market. It's better to cut directly to John the Baptist. Cut away from me. Well, honestly, it's a little too much of you. They don't want you in every scene. They don't. Then why do they still write me fan letters every day? Why do they beg me for my photographs? Why? Because they want to see me. Me, Norma Desmond. Put it back. Okay. These piles of handwritten script pages. (laughs) Of this, like, historical, biblical epic. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, and it's... Is there enough story in Salome to have, like, a whole movie? Like, I don't know. She's... I kind of know the story about, like, John the Baptist and all of that, but she was kind of a minor character in that whole situation. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, she dances the the dance of the seven veils. And she, you know, demands his head on a platter. (laughs) You have to give Norma credit. I mean, she's like... All of the huge A-list actresses now that have just created their own projects to stay relevant. That she was like, on something the- like she's yeah. writing her own material. Yeah. She she was very... She was, she was the Drew Barrymore over time. <laughs> or like yeah. Reese Witherspoon. Yeah. She has her big, she has her, her big production company. Wow. I love when he's like, and you'll, and you'll play Salome, of course. And she's like, who else? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> And, you know, and you think back to, you know, her, you know, the, the later on, you know, of course, she says it's going to be DeMille that's going to direct it. So, of course, that's the what she's going to write is some biblical right. epic. That's what he was known for was, his, the you know, and that's what you see when they go to Paramount and he's filming. Um, I can't remember what he's filming, but um, 
I think it's Samson and Delilah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So you know, clearly that was the the big thing today. A film like that. Oh yeah, it would be made by Kirk. So <laughs> Kirk Cameron. Well, yeah. I mean, like Ridley Scott tries to dust off the old like sword and sandals biblical epic, but it just doesn't quite land like it used to. Exodus, yeah. Gods and Kings. Yeah, not quite, not quite. Um, this whole situation with writing Salome, sending it to, you know, sending Max off to Paramount to drop it off personally to to Mr. DeMille and the mix-up with, uh, you know, them wanting, them calling the house. So she thinks it's Cecil B. DeMille calling her about the script. So she goes down to, I love when when she gets so upset that someone else is calling and that it's not Mr. DeMille calling her directly and she gets so pissed off and she's just like, I'll go, I'll go and I'm good and ready. And then it cuts to, to Joe's voiceover and he goes about three days later, she was good and ready. (laughs) I thought that was really, that was really funny. She puts on that turban and she's good to go. Yeah. I I do like her look when she goes to the studio and what's with great, the veil. and what's so much what's so interesting about when she goes to the studio is that this was still at a time in like the late forties when all of those old guys still work there that would just work on sets they would work the lights the she's recognized mm-hmm. by the guy that works at the gate and he's like well obviously Norma Desmond does not need like a drive on she can just go yeah. There's some really good exactly. there's some really good uh extras and background people that they fill out with kind of some older people to make it, you know, seem like well these were the one these are the ones that would recognize her. The interesting thing is and what we'll, we have a little clip from that we'll play in a second, but I just want to say the interesting thing is for kind of modern audiences when we see Joe hanging out with people his own age at the party. I'm assuming they're still all supposed right. to be youngsters, right? And they look young. But to a point. <laughs> to a point, you know what I mean? Like you know, again, we I don't know, if this movie were made today and it was about, you know, young people in Hollywood and some young scriptwriter, it'd be like children in the yeah. scene. <laughs> yeah, it but, would be yeah, exactly. But the people in the in that New Year's Eve party just having you know this gay old time <laughs> they they just because it's from 1950 they look so much more mature than than we think young carefree young people and i mean film had only been what like hollywood had only been what like 30 years old at that time yeah yeah so yeah so still Crazy. kind of hollywood in its second phase yeah the studio system is kind of hard to wrap your head around you know, for the average person to say that, to think about actors being tied to one studio only and, you know, how they were just kind of, they were like factories that were just putting out a product. And somebody. And that scene, the, the New Year's Eve scene, party scene, mm-hmm. is such, is the one scene in the whole movie that kind of, um, I don't want to say shocks me, but it kind of takes me out of the mood. Yeah. Yeah. Because so austere and you have you know the the scene of her new year's eve party where it's just the two of them mm-hmm. and she rented an entire you know orchestra oh and all this setup 
And then he goes to this cramped little apartment where there's literally a hundred people shoved into this. And they're all, they're like singing songs and laughing hysterically. And it's such a shock because you go from extreme to the, to that, you know, going back to the New Year's Eve scene. What do you think those girls were doing on the phone? Those two girls laughing on the phone. I can't like prank phone calls. (laughs) Like what are they on? Like a dirty hotline or something? I don't know. And their and their laughter is so ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> they're like on a party line, just listening to people have conversations and just like laughing or something. Yeah, and that scene is crazy because he shows up. It's packed with people. They're singing the song that they're singing the song called "Buttons and Bows." Yeah, is what's being played at the piano, and it was the Oscar winning song for that previous year. Oh, oh. sure. So I mean, it would have been like a top forty hit. Of the day, it would have been the top hit, and they were singing it. And um, in my research of this movie, the guy who's playing the piano is the guy who wrote the song. Oh, so sure, those are like yeah. the lyricist, the songwriter, mm-hmm. or like there. Of course, sure. of course, they would be there because yeah. they've been the ones, you know. And and this is so an they're singing that party. song, right? It's an industry party, so that's funny i never knew that that could see and that's stuff that gets lost to time you know and like we never would have put that connection because i've kind of feel like buttons and bows sounds familiar but audiences in 1950 would have recognized it yeah that's a, like a fun little exactly. treat for them yeah. which is a trip and then you have the two girls laughing on the phone <laughs> you've got the you've got the punch that's made out out of what did she say like you put cough a, you syrup. Know, a couple cough drops and some warm warm you know uh lukewarm liquid water and yeah yeah it's <laughs> it's kind of a nuts scene the scene is kind of crazy and then there's a lot of like jokey jokey lines in it mm-hmm. like everyone's like you know pull a laugh it's 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 a trip yeah, yeah. The 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 way the friends kind of interact with each other, they're trying to be very like, I don't know, sarcastic or just very, I don't know, they're putting on this kind of like jokey thing with each other and it's just to kind of, I don't right. know, to kind of give us this idea that they're all like they're all pals and they all go way back or whatever. Um I do like Joe's interactions and his relationship with what's the character's name? Betty Schaefer, Betty Schaefer. played by Nancy Olsen. We love Betty Schaefer. I love that character too. I love this yeah, girl. Yeah, and then uh, Green, which is her fiance. Yeah, from Dragnet. From Dragnet, exactly. Yeah, Hardy <laughs> um, Green, and he's kind of like the you know yuck yuck yucking it up kind mm-hmm. of you know character in it. He always has a sarcastic thing to say, or you know. Um, but Betty, what a great role because she's like the one grounded character in the whole movie yeah and she sort of represents in a very bitter movie about hollywood about the good that this town does have and people that make movies yeah like someone who's very sincere she wants to be a screenwriter she has been working in hollywood and on the movie set since she was a child and she just seems very pure and it's the type of character that the script really needs that i think that if you were to cut Nancy Olson's character out, it would just seem too angry that she just sort of lightens it a oh. little bit. And she's kind of the opposite of Norma yes. in that, mm-hmm. you know, Norma, it's all about um, appearance 
and it's all about um, likability and her fans. And then you have someone like Betty who talks about, has that whole speech about, you know, there, I was going to be an actress and they gave me screen tests and they had me fix my nose, but then they loved my nose after I got it fixed. But then, you know, but they didn't like my acting and how she kind of like is okay with being behind the scenes. And that's kind of an interesting flip from Norma, who's all about being in front of the camera. And you have Betty, who's perfectly fine being behind the camera. Yeah, for sure. What were you, a child actress? No, I was born just two blocks from the studio, right on Lemon Grove Avenue. My father was head electrician here till he died. Mother still works in wardrobe. Second generation, huh? Third. Grandma did stunt work for Pearl White. I come from a picture family. Naturally, they expected me to become a great star. So I had ten years of dramatic lessons, diction, dancing. Then the studio made a test. Well, they didn't like my nose. Slanted this way a little. So I went to a doctor and had it fixed. They made more tests and they were crazy about my nose. Only they didn't like my acting. Nice job. It should be. It cost me $300. That's the saddest thing I ever heard. Well, not at all. It taught me a little sense. I got a job in the mailroom, worked up to the stenographic. Now I'm a reader. Come clean, Betty. At night you weep for those lost close-ups, those gala openings. Not once. What's wrong with being on the other side of the cameras? It's really more fun. I can't even imagine what a 1950s nose job entailed. The 40s nose job. <laughs> that just sounds yeah. dangerous. Just saw that thing down. <laughs> $300. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get it in Mexico? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we love nuts. We love uh, the Betty Schaefer character. Um I love that the op- her opening scene she just reads him to filth on the script. Yeah. Right with Sheldrick in the in the you know agents or not the the um, producer's office. Yeah, it kind of gives you this idea too of this whole studio system where at this time they're not really interested in quality. Right, I feel like it was more so quantity and what's going to make them a buck, the studio. Right, because Joe is just like screenwriters at that time were just. You know, banging them out, banging them out, banging them out. And they weren't all trying to write, you know, Gone with the Wind. They were just trying to get something sold and made. And all of that talk about how this movie started off started off on a submarine or it ended up on a submarine after after all the rewrites. You know, talking about right. the, how Yeah. You know, it's a baseball it's a baseball script and then suddenly ends up on a submarine and and that's where it was, and you know, and you have Sheldrick, the the producer, who's, you know, he's downing Alka Seltzer, <laughs> highly stressed out. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't care about the script at all. He just wants something that's going to make money. Yep. And you know, the look on Joe Gillis's face when he's like, Sheldrick's like, "Well, do you see this as a Betty Hutton film?" You think this could be something Betty Hutton could do. And just the look of just defeat and disgust. (laughs) Here's the script, this amazing script that I'm writing. And you've just, you know, completely brought it down to, you know, being a, a throwaway film, Uh, you know? Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I do, I do love all this stuff with, uh, with Betty Schaefer and Joe on the lot, all this stuff. She with sort them. of reminds him of, uh, what he used to love about being a screenwriter too. Yeah. yeah. And like creating right. something. The mystery though, because he keeps to her, he's popping in every now and then he shows up at the new year's right. Eve party and he leaves in a hurry. You know, he walks into Schwab's while they're just having, you know, a sandwich at the counter and he's in a tux. And again. she gets weird contact numbers for him too, where she yeah. calls the house not really knowing where he is. Mm-hmm. All the stuff with her calling the house is amazing. When you see Norma on the phone talking to Betty, <laughs> she has this crazed look in her eye. I forget what she's telling right. her. <laughs> but she, Do you uh, know where he lives? Yeah. Do you know what he lives on? <laughs> Do you know where? Yeah, she's bonk. She's she's approaching. Well, yes. she's bonkers. Yeah, at this at point. point. Yeah, for she's sure. Um, we talked a little bit about it earlier, and we kind of skipped over it. So I do want to go back to um, Norma Paramount. Yes. Um, before that, we there's the clip that we that I want to play. Is it of Norma when they're watching one of her own silent movies in her living room, like movie theater? Which is, I mean, come on. Nowadays, you know, I feel like people put in home theaters. Pretty common. Pretty common thing. If you go get like a McMansion in the Valley, yeah. it's probably going to have a home theater in it. But I think in Norma Desmond's house, pulling up this oil painting that was given to her by some Nevada, what did he say? Some Nevada Chamber of Commerce. Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> And Max is just like pulling this velvet rope and the the painting rises. And here comes Norma in her living room to watch one of her own movies fully decked out. Look like she's going to like the 1930 Academy Awards or something. Yeah, she's wearing just like this beautiful blouse, like nipped in waist. And they're watching, you know, one of the movies. I believe it is Queen Kelly. Starring herself, starring Gloria Stewart. And this is Gloria Swanson. Yep. Gloria Swanson, not Gloria Stewart from Titanic. From Titanic (laughs) and The Invisible Man. Um, This is the movie that Max von Stroheim directed. Yes. Right? And it was a big old bust. Uh, Well, she has an amazing kind of blow up in this this scene. So I want to play this clip and then we'll talk about her at Paramount. Still wonderful, isn't it? And no dialogue. We didn't need dialogue. We had faces. There just aren't any faces like that anymore. Maybe one, Garbo. Those idiot producers. Those imbeciles. Haven't they got any eyes? Have they forgotten what a star looks like? I'll show them. I'll be up there again, so help me. I love that outburst because she's just kind of arguing with herself. Yeah. (laughs) Like Joe doesn't say anything. Nobody says anything. She's just like, look how great we were. And then just, it turns into like, well, fuck you. Right. And the can we talk about the cinematography in that shot is absolute brilliance. The cigarette smoke through 
the cigarette smoke coming through the light of the projector. Yep. Hitting her. Mm-hmm. Just fantastic. Yes. It really is fantastic. And she had a way of acting with her whole body and she would use her hands and her arms and make these crazy when she's grabbing joe's arm and she's just like you can just see these like claws like her (laughs) nails just digging into his arms when joe is sitting reading the script and norma has like her her leg up and her hand is over the side of her leg and she's just like it just looks like a claw that Norma is Claw just this creature. And she's got that cigarette holder. Yeah, that's that like crazy, a ring. Yeah. That's a cool cigarette that holder. That crazy contraption. I've never seen anything like that, and I've never seen anything like that since. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Someone has made one like that because it would I would take up smoking if that was <laughs> the case. Yeah, the way she you can just hold your finger hooked right in like a little hook right in front of you and just smoke right out of it. It's so cool. Um, some of the costume stuff, costuming in this movie is insane. Shout out to Edith Head. I mean, yeah, Edith Head. Hollywood legend. I do remember I have to bring up that when I first bought the DVD after having rented it, I bought the DVD and I watched it with commentary. And the commentary track is delivered by this like gay movie historian who like this is his favorite movie and he's kind of everything because there are scenes when he's just like what is she wearing he's just like what what is this thing that she has around her neck i don't even know what that is and he's just like commenting on it and in the in the documentaries he's got like one earring in his left ear and it's a diamond stud and like I love that kind of like '90s gay man that had that ear. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but that just shows you the kind of audience that this movie found. Like we all just love the. Is it the camp? Like what is it that we just identify so well, much with Norma? I think that Norma just speaks to gay men just sort of being disregarded. Sure. By people that you really can't fit into society, especially kind of years ago, like decades ago, that you're just sort of on the fringe. And yeah. Norma is someone that lives on the fringe of society in this giant house. Yeah. Ultimately, she makes her way to Paramount. And we have a really cool scene there. There's a lot of really cool stuff going on. I mean, you get Cecil B. DeMille. You get Max talking about his suite of offices Right. That he had decorated in black patent leather. Yeah, the walls were covered in black patent leather. What the wow. hell? In the, like, <laughs> Taking a meeting in that office? <laughs> and this is the time of like, I mean, we see DeMille in the scene wearing the puffy director pants and like riding boots. He just needs a giant megaphone. Yeah, he's like a caricature of like a movie director. And I get, he always dressed like that. That's so insane. Like, what is that a writing thing? Like, what is that? I don't understand that look. Yeah, so he's wearing choppers and riding boots. <laughs> and I guess he would also have a riding crop with him. Oh, my God. Usually. <laughs> and it was like his thing. He always wore that outfit. Yeah. And there's like a man, there's a man in the shots that would stand next to him and you see it and he hands them the the mic, the God mic that they call it so that he could just like 
talk into it and his voice would be projected around the entire soundstage. And like, it's so crazy that that was just somebody's job to hold this God mic and hand it to him when he, you know, when he would call lunch. What does he call Norma when he first sees her? Young fella. Uh, young fella. Mm-hmm. And he actually called Gloria Swanson that. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That was yeah. his way of referring to her was young fella. And they had that great, you know, the last time I saw you was someplace, someplace gay. Someplace gay. I remember was- we were dancing on tables mm-hmm. and he's like, well, Lindbergh had just landed in Paris. <laughs> That's some like Monty <laughs> Burns shit right there. <laughs> yeah. So I looked, I looked that up. I, cause I didn't remember off the top of my head and Lindbergh landed in Paris in 1927. And right, so you have like, 20 some odd years later. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So like 23 about years later. So that's very interesting that that was kind of when she was at the top of her game or that was the last time she saw him. So right. Kind of waning in her career. And it, so it's been 23 years since she's been back to Paramount. Um, the interaction at the gate when the, when the security guard is just like, no, we need to like, Jones. <laughs> We, we don't have that little bit, but we do have the bit where um, she meets Mr. DeMille at the door of the stage. He brings her in and sits her down so that he can kind of figure out because Cecil B. DeMille is kind of like, why is she here? What in the hell is she doing here? Yeah. Like, what, right. what in the hell is she doing here? What does she want? And how do I get rid of her? Kind of. And so he sits her down to to go figure it out. And that's when that's when we get this 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 uh, this senior. Hey, Miss Desmond, Miss Desmond, it's me, it's Hall Guy. Hello, Hall Guy. Let's get a good look at you. There's Norma Desmond. Norma Desmond. This is Norman or Element. She's being recognized. Yeah. You know what mm-hmm. it fond over? You know what it reminds me of? Um, I'm sure you probably watched uh, Feud, Betty and Joan. Yes. Okay. So in that show, and I guess this was a real thing that Joan Crawford did was that she would really kind of ingratiate herself with the crew and kind of like get to know everybody. And then on the first day on what, whatever happened to baby Jane, Joan Crawford shows up with personalized little gifts for everybody. And she had like a box of chocolates for this one and a tie for this one. And she made it a point to know everybody's name on set so that she would know all the crew. And you know, some of the extras in that scene were like, oh, you remember me, don't you? And so it kind of gave me that idea that, yeah. you know, that maybe Norma was a kind of actress that kind of did get to know everybody. But yeah, I just kind of had that idea from the way the way the extras were kind of talking to her about like, oh, don't you remember me? And she's she's just like, oh, yeah. Hello. Hello, Hawkeye. <laughs> I like that when she backs uh, yeah, away and, the microphone. And, that scene is just, and it's it's also so... It's endearing, the scene. Yes. But it's also kind of sad because everyone that recognizes her are old. <laughs> Nobody that's young on the movie set cares. It's just all the old people. Mm. Right. 
But um, that, here's where we find out that they were actually interested in the car. The car. Oh. Gag. Womp womp. Oh, Gordon Cole. That darn Gordon Cole. Gordon Cole. <laughs> Damn him. <laughs> Damn him. to get that car. Uh, um, I do want to um, talk about real quick this shot because I'm, this movie is so cinematically amazing. Um, probably my absolute favorite shot in the entire movie is this shot of the boom uh, microphone. Um, coming across and hitting the very tip of her peacock feather in her hat. She swats it away. And her looking up her looking up and her swatting it away out of disgust for the sound. Yep. You know, it's such a great it just it says so much oh, yeah. about the film and and her and yeah, it's so great. Anyway. Yeah, it is it is a, a, a lovely shot and it's this crazy old timey big giant unwieldy looking mic that comes comes sliding in. Uh, yeah, it is. That's a, that's really cool. Um, so we we did talk before about the two kind of simultaneous New Year's Eve parties, and how kind of sad Norma's. Part. Well, not. I mean, it is sad, but it's just kind of shit gets a little real <laughs> when I think yeah. this is really when Joe's like, oh, she like I. Thought that she was a little nutty, but this bitch cray. Yeah. Yeah, totally. When, uh, you know, when he's first there reading her script, and it's just the two of them, Max wheels out champagne and caviar. So this is kind of like the type of house that you're in. When you're just kind of sitting down having a chat, there's going to be champagne and caviar. So. For this New Year's party, she waxes the floor. and She's got this huge dance floor in her ballroom. There's this full orchestra. You know, Max is behind the bar, like, you know, tending bar. And he comes out in this tuxedo that looks so crazy on him. Like, it's like a different person when he walks out in that tuxedo. And she says it. She's like, oh, I love these lines. Like, look at this. She's just like putting her hands all over him in this tux. He looks amazing in this. I love his response is don't don't fool yourself. It's all padding. Yeah. Yeah, because it's probably really wide shoulder pads. And then he's probably so tight around the waist. Is he wearing some hip pads? No, but... (laughs) He he might be wearing a girdle though, because that like his waist in that he, yeah his waist in that tuxedo is so small and his shoulders are like super wide. I think he's just referring to the shoulders, right? Right, the padding. Um, but yeah, he looks absolutely amazing in this tux, and she comes out in a dress, a beautiful dress. But I feel like this outfit on Norma is the most like matronly. I feel like she looks a little bit more. <laughs> A little bit more her age with this, like, is it kind of like a Spanish-inspired look that she's wear, that she's pulling off on New Year's? It's kind of her tango outfit. Yeah, and she's got that crazy diamond tiara with the netting. Yes. It's like a veil, but also just, like, netting flying around. And he's just like, oh, and she's like, oh, don't lean back. And he's like, oh, that thing, it's tickling my face. Rips it off. 
this thing. You don't rips, like it? Just rips it out of it. You don't like it? Gone. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tosses it to the floor. Yeah, for Max to just pick up. And then she's just like, she's just like, she's like smashing her hair down because her hair was probably, her hairstyle that night was built around this tiara thing that she's wearing. So she went and ruined it. Um, does Joe leave just because he's so freaked out at the fact that there's no other guests there? I forget why he ultimately leaves the New Year's yeah. Eve party. She gives him the the um, gold cigarette case. Oh, sure. And and it's kind of like too much. Like he's now kind of freaked out because it's all he realizes. You remember she says, you know, um, she has the great line of um, now I'm going to get it wrong, but it's like, don't be afraid to love me of some sort. Right. And she slaps him and. He's at that point. He's like, "I'm out of here." Yeah, and he leaves, and it's raining. It's New Year's Eve, and he makes his way to to Betty and mm-hmm. and the friend's house to have the juxtaposition of their New Year's Eve party, which is young, carefree kids singing buttons and bows and drinking cough syrup. They're they're right. They're scissorping at this party. Scissorping exactly. <laughs> oh boy. And, you know, just the, the concept of, like, I mean, anybody would be freaked out. If you were going to a fancy party to come to find out you're the only guest yeah. and, like, all of this has been set up. There's a whole, there's an orchestra playing. There's, you know, a champagne tower. <laughs> she didn't even invite over, like, Buster Keaton. Even if it was just the waxworks. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Isn't it, is it Buster Keaton? It is. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's one of them. Buster Keaton and um, I can't remember the other two, but yeah, it's a great. You know, these were also silent film actors who hadn't really done anything in a while, so it was like I wasn't familiar with the the actress that was part of the group, and I looked her up. And her name is Anna Q. Nilsson. And Anna Q. Mm-hmm. Nilsson was born in like the 1880s. And when you look on her, on, oh yeah. And when you look on her IMDb page, the images look like the kind of movies that she made were full on like Main Street USA, like put the put the penny in the machine and turn the crank and you see like the Nickelodeon, like she's like fixing her hair in front of a mirror and like that's the movie. Like that's how hardly a yeah. That's how old her like the images looked on her IMDb. I was like, wow, Anna Q. Nilsson, you are old, and she looked compared to Norma sitting at that table playing bridge. She looked like an elderly woman. Um, I mean, if she was born in the 1880s, she was probably you know in her 70s at that point in 1950. Um, Unless I'm doing my math wrong, which I may be. But yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, the two New Year's parties and and Norma's party is it's it's creepy, but it's depressing and and all of that. But I mean, nothing kind of gets me more than when Max on the phone tells him that like she's tried to commit suicide. Yeah, <laughs> she got into your razors. Mm-hmm. 
And now it's almost like now yeah. it's almost his fault because there were his razors and they, you know, there's no doorknobs in the house. There's no locks on any door because the madame. One of, my, once, one of the lines in that scene where he finally comes, but, you know, he races back to the mansion because she's now slit her wrists mm-hmm. and he meets Max at the door and Max is like, don't, don't rush up the stairs too fast. Yeah. Because we don't want yeah. musicians to know what happened, and I'm like, that orchestra is still playing, They're still there, the whole time. It's still there for no. It's got to be one or two in the morning at this point. Yeah. So they they know something's going on, regardless of Joe running up the stairs. I loved, uh, you know, earlier in the movie when Joe asks about the door locks and the doorknobs, and what Max tells him, he says. The Madame has bouts of melancholy, mm-hmm. so she's. I love. That. So she's tried this before. <laughs> bouts, bouts of melancholy. Yeah. I love that. So like, oh, I wish I would just have bouts of melancholy every now and then. I'm just gonna call it that. And that room that he's staying in, which is the husband's room, yeah, <laughs> the husband's room, and it's it, it's so huge and grand, yeah, and it's nuts it's all this dark wood and this this bed that literally looks like it's a football field long it's huge <laughs> and then he looks over and there's no there's no door doorknobs that'd be that would be a little disconcerting oh yeah it would be sure. a little alarming yeah um yeah. it is so tragic when he walks into norma's room and the camera is set up there and you can see her on the bed, but you don't see her face. You see her arms wrapped up and her body. But the way the shot is is set up, it's so that, it, you know, it's from behind. So you don't see her face and you see her, you know, her little teeny tiny wrists wrapped up. And she's the way that Gloria Swanson plays this scene. She's just like, don't look at me. She's it's not the big grand over the top Norma. It's very subtle and subdued and you know, she's embarrassed. Embar- yeah. Yeah. She's embarrassed. It's, it, it's crazy. It just really shows that, well, maybe it wasn't all just that one note, crazy performance. She has all these layers to, to this character and to mm-hmm. herself and all that. And it's so sad, but this is where they, you know, she's just like she wants him to leave and all of that, and he's just he's mad at her for for doing this for attempting suicide. But the scene ends with him kissing her, and that's when you're just like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, yeah. Uh, maybe not the right time, but they are fucking <laughs> yeah. very. It's, it's 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 really interesting, and it's like Joe kind of like. As much as he probably doesn't want to, he just, I don't know, he just kind of feels guilty for getting to this point, maybe. So. Very- yeah, he's just, he, and he's a very sad character. I mean, he's so conflicted. Yeah. He's kind of, he's, he's ashamed of himself because he's brought himself, you know, he's allowed himself to get to this point with her. And it's just, and the way that she, when they do go in for the kiss, the way she, her claw-like hands kind of grab on yes. him and mm-hmm. pull him into, she pulls pulls him into her, mm-hmm. and it's like, and then the, you know the scene dissolves. Um, but it's that's when you're like, okay, we see what's going on here. Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely one of the big themes of this movie is the nature of Hollywood and is the exploitation of people and just how heartless it can be. Joe started this movie kind of wanting to quit Hollywood. He saw this opportunity and it's just sort of the consequences of him working his way up is that now he's just stuck with Norma in this lonely mansion that it's sort of like a prison for him. It's really, it's, it, it makes, it is a very sad aspect of the story, you know? Yeah. Um, from here on out though, it's when we get Joe starting to sneak out at night. Yeah. Now he's fully just like, he's stealing the car. I mean, is it stealing? He's like, right. you know, but he's fully stealing this car, driving this giant 1930s limousine <laughs> to Paramount Studios <laughs> under the cover of night and um, and working with Betty. But it's not really an affair. She's still engaged to, you know, to her Artie. to Artie. Um, so it's. It's kind of an emotional affair. You know, she's she's not really going to leave Artie for Joe. She just is serious about this script opportunity because she doesn't want to be a reader forever. And she knows that she needs to hitch her wagon onto somebody else as a woman, you know, in the studio system, mm-hmm. probably, to, you know, to get ahead. So she's trying to get this thing done. He's sneaking out every night so he doesn't just have to deal with these two weirdos like all day long. <laughs> and when Norma kind of calls him on it, it's like it starts it's that's when you really see her starting to deteriorate. And yeah. those kind of scenes are just so are so sad. When she's just like yeah. holding on and- to the to the bed banister and stuff. And you have that amazing scene where you have the reveal of Max um, and what his relationship is to her. Yes. And this is when it's revealed that he was her director and he's been writing all of the fan letters. So he's just sort of been uh, kind of keeping her going with these thoughts that she still remembered, too. And she's and he's her ex-husband. Yes. Oh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the four ex-husbands. Was he the first one? When he, he, no, he's like the fourth. Yeah, I think he's like the last husband. Oh man. Yeah, and he there's that crazy scene where he pulls in, you know, the car after being out at Paramount, mm-hmm. and Max is hiding in the shadow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but Max is not there to expose him. He's just kind of there to tell him, like, yeah. be more careful. Because right. He's like, you might want to make sure you're, you know, take a different path because she's, she's she'll watching. Be watching the, yeah. You know. He's not like, ooh, I caught you and I'm going to go tell her. He's like, no, if this is happening, okay, here's how you here's how you hide it from her. Because he's more concerned with Norma's well-being. He's not trying to break them up. He's not trying to, you know, expose Joe or whatever. He's just like... You need to be more careful because she's going to find out, which is very interesting on Max's part. He's, you know, it's not, he's not coming at this from like jealousy or anything. He just is still in no, love with Norma. It's all about keeping her fragile, you know? Yeah. 
her fragile mind going, you know? And he knows that she's just sort of on the edge, that she just needs a little... It like the littlest thing could push her over the edge. Yeah. Right. So she calls <laughs> So she calls Joe on, you know, going out at night. We we kind of talked a little bit about her on the phone calls with Betty because Betty's been trying to contact Joe at home, but the the phone numbers that she has, like either Max jumps on the line and says, Stop calling here. Or, you know, Norma answers and she gives these like creepy, <laughs> these creepy responses. Right. I love Betty's kind of like, she is a young, unmarried girl on the go. She's a career girl. And so she lives in like this girl's boarding house kind of a situation. Yeah, she's got a roommate. Yeah. But isn't there like a woman, like some like some marm that like lives on the on the floor? So I I kind of assumed it to be like a boarding house because the, I feel like there was like an older woman in there somewhere. It probably I mean in that time of frame, she either lived in an apartment with you know, or it was like a woman's hotel. Yeah, yeah. Where you live, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that actress who plays her roommate yes. is like, hey Betty, it's that weird woman on the phone for you again. <laughs> Yeah, and but and you know this girl has a car because this girl drives Betty to the you know to the house. She they they right. get they get the address and she's just like, all right, let's go. <laughs> that weird woman's house. She looks at this address. Oh, I want to I want to check out this house. Yeah, right. And there's that great line that Max has where he says, you know, she Betty's been calling looking for Joe, and Norma's like, who was on the phone? And Max says. It was someone looking for a stray dog. Our phone number must be very close to the phone number of the pound. And it's shade. Telling. It's, yeah, it's so super shade. It's so telling on how what he thinks of Joe. Yeah. Like, here's the stray dog. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. I just thought that was so funny when he said our phone number must be very similar to the one at the pound. Um. You know, Betty makes her way to the house and is just like, I'm uh, out. She's like, oh, <laughs> this is this is what this guy's situation is. Yeah. This explains a lot. But I love that she's ready with when she kind of tells Joe, like, she's ready to just be like, whatever this was, let's just go. Let's just, this is cool, but right. I was never here. I've never been to this house and neither have you. Mm-hmm. Let's go. And Betty does have she's, feelings for him she's, too. She's giving him an out, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah, she's giving him an out to just be like, just come back with me. Forget this. But he, I love that, and it's interesting that he's kind of come to the realization that it's that wouldn't work. Yeah, and he pretty much says to her, "Is like you've heard of these, you've heard of these kind of um, setups before, you know the." The older rich woman and the young guy, and you know, he pretty much says calls him, calls himself out as a gigolo. Yeah, at that point. Yep. Yeah. Does he just? Does Which is he, it's a sad, sad scene. You know. It no, it is his kind mm-hmm. of. He's just kind of like, and he's just ready to throw in the towel and just go back to his town in the Midwest. Yeah. Just to completely leave Hollywood in general. Yeah, I think he's ready to just kind of give it up at this point. And Norma can't take it. 
she has to stop him at any means necessary, and she ends up what shooting him in the back, <sighs> and he <laughs> falls into the pool. You just get the camera starts to pull away as he's walking out the door because he's just like, "I'm gonna leave." So yeah, when we see Norma's tiny little body walk out the front door, waving this gun, waving this gun around. <laughs> when she first tells him, though, she's like, "I bought, I bought a revolver." I love her little lady's <laughs> revolver too. This is crazed, wild. Like I bought, I bought a gun, I bought a gun, Joe. <laughs> um. Yeah, so she just shoots him as he's walking away. And so this is where it cuts to, like, the present. It's no longer the flashback. And um, we get, like, the most iconic scene of this movie. Yeah, it's... um, So pretty much the entire industry is at Norma's house. We get a wonderful cameo by um, gossip columnist... Hedda Hopper. Hedda Hopper. Dictating her story. Which, Hedda Hopper, I feel like... I don't know how I feel about her. After seeing, like, the Dalton Trumbo movie, where she was, like, spearheaded, like, blacklisting, like, all these, all these, you know... She was definitely pretty cunty. Yeah, she was not exactly, like, the best, you know, type of person. But, you know, she's in this movie... She started as an actress, so they put her on screen, and um, her face says a lot. Speaking of acting with one look. And she was so... The great portrayal of her by uh, Judy Davis in uh, Feud. Yes. So good. Yes, indeed. So good. We love Judy Davis. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, should we play? Should yeah. We play? Okay, we're going to play that clip of uh, of the scene of the movie. Lights! Are you ready, Norma? What is the scene? Where am I? This is the staircase of the palace. This, like, crazy little, like, dance, mm-hmm. the way she, like, comes down the staircase. When she's looking in the mirror, she's, like, pulling an Alyssa Edwards when she's doing some faces in the mirror. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So she fully, now in her head, this is Salome. Mm-hmm. Right. She's making the movie. Yeah, she's completely lost it at this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is where, you know, it ends and we're just kind of left with the tragedy of, you know, of Norma and are they just going to put her in, you know, in a, in a loony bin for the rest of her days? 
was it you know temporary insanity maybe she'll get like a more of a glamorous wing of the insane asylum <laughs> right i hope so yeah and what i love i love about that scene and the way it's directed of her coming down the staircase is how she's the only one who's moving everyone else is frozen yeah and she's doing that crazy to the amazing Franz Waxman score mm-hmm. of her coming down that, you know, when she's coming down the staircase and she's doing that kind of dance of the seven veils down the staircase. And everyone is just kind of in shock and awe of what's happening. And you have the crazy um, justification of Max kind of stepping in and directing the scene. Yeah. Trying to, you know, and, and the whole idea that it's to get her downstairs so that they can put her in a, you know, put her into a, a paddy wagon. Yeah. So the men with the white, the white nets, can, the big butterfly nets can. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and Norma's just sort of this monster and creature that Hollywood has created. Yeah. Like the industry did this to her. I, I do love Max taking control of the newsreel cameras and calling action and, and, you know, calling for lights and all that. And just, you're right to give Norma this idea of, of, okay, this is Salome. You're on the set. We're doing this for you. And, and yeah, to, to lure her out. Cause she's, she hasn't moved from that, from that boudoir, you know, like vanity, even with the cops questioning her and, and everything. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a tragic ending to like an amazing movie. These like the performances all around, everything like you said, the score, the costumes, the 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 direction. It's like this movie is insane. Just the tone of the movie of this is a movie made by Hollywood that is not really flattering, and that you could just right. see when this came out. You always hear stories that Louis B. Mayer was just furious at Weiler, at anybody that made this movie of how could you do this to our industry? It's like, this is just sort of like you're breaking the illusion of movies. And that was just sort of... It shows the seedy underbelly of what, you know. Yeah. Do you think that that could have cost her the Oscar? That's interesting because you have it was uh, um, all about Eve. Yep, and right? all about Eve is very much a movie that's um, kind of it's the same subject matter, but both tackle it very differently. Too right. One's about you know movies or the film industry. The other one's about theater. Theater, yeah. But just sort of actresses when they get older, they just get disregarded by their peers. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it, it was it was definitely an interesting Oscar season because I think with um, with Gloria Swanson, she was kind of like the fan favorite. Sure. Right. Yep. I mean, she had the she had the arc of the comeback. You know the right. the return. I hate that word. It's going to say it's not called. It's not a comeback. <laughs> it's a return. Maybe the the uh, actors' vote would have been Betty Davis. But all right. I'm saying is, if I am a voting member, I'm filling out my ballot, and I see best actress, 
I am probably marking down Gloria Swanson. <laughs> that is who I'm voting for. What about you? Oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, you, you, you watch both of those films, All About Eve and then Sunset Boulevard. And yes, they're both amazing um, performances, but for me, it would be Gloria, you know, Gloria Swanson's performance. That should have won. I think Sunset Boulevard goes down a lot easier than All About Eve, especially yeah. to modern audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a quicker movie. It's briskly paced. It's it's just go go go. Whereas All About Eve is a little bit more uh, of a leisurely paced movie. It's a little bit more dated. And they're both yeah they're both about like showbiz, but. You know, the theater industry is something that's a little bit more like you kind of have to have your foot in the door of that world to kind of understand or even really care a lot about it. Whereas the movie industry, just kind of everybody just kind of knows. And it's got enough little nods and hints to Hollywood and all that to have a more everyday average audience member to to latch on to. And um, so I think Sunset Boulevard, for those reasons, goes down a lot easier. It's a lot more palatable today. Than, mm-hmm. than than all about Eve. And I, I love Betty Davis and I love her performance in that movie, but I think Norma Desmond is just such a standout role. Yeah. And, you know. And who won that year? Judy Holiday for Born <laughs> Yesterday. I've actually have never seen the original Born Yesterday. I've seen the remake with Melanie Griffith. With Melanie Griffith. <laughs> Melanie Griffith. <laughs> Haven't you ever seen Born <laughs> Yesterday from the nineties? From the nineties with with <laughs> Melanie Griffith and Don Johnson. Oh yeah. Oh. And do you know who the other actress was in the category that people forget about? She was the number fifth spot. It was the Baroness from The Sound of Music. It was Eleanor Parker in a women's prison movie called Caged. Oh my god. Huh. Yeah, so, I mean, feel like Eleanor Parker kind of gets, like, swept under the rug (laughs) when people are talking about the 1951 Oscar year. Sure. But, yeah, she was fully in that category. And everyone was gagged that they split the vote and gave it to the ingenue. Yeah, yeah, it's like they canceled each other out almost. Because it it was, mm -hmm. you have these two um, powerhouses Mm -hmm. that have been around... And then you've got Judy Holiday. <laughs> yeah. Um, it kind of reminds me of the year that Emma Stone won for La La Land because I feel like the actor's vote was either Natalie Portman and Jackie or Isabella Huppert for Elle. And it just right. sort of split it and it sent it to Emma Stone. To the popcorn movie. Oh, yeah. To the popcorn populist movie. Yeah. And there's many, many years of... Oscar seasons where that's happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just such one of the, it's one of those things where you're just like, oh man, like it would have been like if the stars would have aligned, it was just her year, you know, for her entire career, you know, all of the movies that she had done and to have this return, you know, role, it just would have and been. And it's like, uh, um, Betty Davis went back twice. Yeah, and famously lost for uh, to Anne Bancroft for the Miracle Worker, and we know how that went. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. <laughs> she already had two. She, she had wanted two. three. Had no one had had three point. yet. <laughs> I love how Betty Davis is just like, yeah, I wanted three. She just 
<laughs> She's just like, what? I wanted another one. No one had done it. Yeah. Oh man. Well, I mean, <sighs> do we left any? Do we leave anything out I when mean, talking yeah. about this movie? Dennis, do you have any final thoughts that we can wrap up on on Sunset Boulevard? Anything we haven't touched on, or just why this movie endures for all of us? It, it kind of why does it relate to the queer experience too? Yeah, I feel like a lot's been written on that for that reason. Well, definitely, it's the the outsider or the the forgotten or the you know the misfit toy aspect of of the story of norma desmond and then you know and there's so many parallels to you know gay relationships and that you have relationships of older and younger and then you've got then you have the whole storyline of max yeah and his I mean, if you look at his whole storyline, it's really fucked up, you know, yeah. and it's that kind of, um, and there's, it's all these, um, parallels to gay relationships. I think that we, that we see, um, definitely, um, the camp value of just an over the top female character. Yeah. Uh, and I was going to mention with the the stairway scene at the very end, one of my two of my favorite things in it is that she breaks the fourth wall, <laughs> mm-hmm. and she looks right at the camera and says, "You know, thanking she's thanking the director and thanking you know everyone for help, being helpful." And then she looks right at the camera and breaks the fourth wall and says, "And to all you beautiful people out there in the yeah. dark." And that's so it, it's shocking and amazing. And um, and I love that you. Re- she really doesn't get her close up at the end. Yeah, because Billy Wilder decided to go to a dissolve just as it's about to be really a close up. <laughs> he dissolves, and she doesn't get her close up. Oh, mm-hmm. that says a lot. Ah, uh, tragic. Yep. Oh man. Totally tragic. Oh man, that's crazy. Wow. I love this movie. Perfectly sums it up. I'm glad that we finally got to a classic Hollywood movie. I can't wait to do more. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it goes without saying that we strongly recommend uh, listeners to watch this movie if you have not seen it. (laughs) And like what Pete said, I think what's so great about revisiting this movie is that, A, it ages really well. Yeah. All of the themes of its movies are of, of the movie are still topical today. Like, I mean, I feel like even though actresses like Nicole Kidman, uh, Jennifer Aniston still work in their 50s, but I mean, they are the elite group of A-listers that can. Yeah, you can count on your hand maybe five. That for the most part, when you get to your later 30s, that's just sort of what happens. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I mean. And also, like uh, you mentioned about the pacing that it just goes down really easy mm-hmm. and it's cut like a modern movie. Yeah. And that Quick. says a lot for <laughs> an old Hollywood movie. Yeah. That it has that brisk of pace. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah. I love it. So good. Strongly recommend. Strongly recommend. Dennis, this was so fun. Yeah, we'll have you back. Yeah, I had a great time. Yeah. This Thank was, you so much for having me. You're very, very welcome. We would, we would love uh, to have you to have you come back and do another movie we'll we'll think about which one uh 
to come back and and talk about. But we're going to play our little sign off music while we say goodbye to uh, to our guest Dennis Griffin. Don't let the smoke get you down in the apocalypse. Bye. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Have a great rest of your night. Thanks, you too. Bye. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody. That was so much fun. Good episode. Yes, indeed. Great episode. Uh, we've come to the time in our show for our Patreon. This is like a new segment. Out. I love it. Yes, indeed. This is a new segment. This is really fun. Um, we're just going to say hello and thank you to all of our wonderful patrons. Uh, we have just started our Patreon page. Let's say thanks to everybody first, and then we'll talk about how you can support us on Patreon. We'd like to thank Mitchell Ralston. Rufino Cabang, Christine Asher, Nick Thomas, John Miller, Jessica something, and Melinda and Jim Shirley. Thank you so much, everybody, for Y'all rock. supporting our little show. You guys are amazing. Uh, we would love if you listeners could support us on Patreon. We are at www.patreon.com slash movies that made us gay. We're getting a cute little newsletter to to send out. Yes. For the donors. Yes. The newsletter is really fun. Uh, If you join at the $5 a month level, you can get the newsletter. Uh, We are starting out monthly, but really I think I'm going to send it twice a month because it's super fun to put together. It's got um, some extra movie reviews, movies that we've gone out and seen, uh, some what we're watching on TV, I'm writing up a review for Cobra Kai that I just finished and I love it and I can't shut up about it. So everybody's going to get my review of Cobra Kai. He hasn't shut up about it. I know. I can vouch for that. <laughs> You're going to get some entertainment news, a really fun section about entertainment, some gossip. Honey. I love the entertainment, honey. There's going to be some great gossip in there and lots of shade. And uh, you're also going to get sneak peeks of upcoming episodes. This is all in the newsletter, by the way. Yeah. This is all just in the newsletter. I pretty much have our October lineup almost done. Yep. Like, I think that I might be missing, like, one movie, and that's it. Oh, dang. So, yeah. So, you're going to see all the movies that are upcoming. And then, separately from that, if you join us at the $10 a month level, that is, like, one extra value meal from Jack in the Box. Yeah. Just one. If you do that, mm-hmm. you can get our additional commentary track episodes. Watch the movie with us. Which reminds me, we need to record another one soon. Yes, indeed. We're still thinking about the mm-hmm. second Watch With Us movie for September. You're going to get two a month, you right? Can, You're going to get two a month. You can slide into Patreon with some recommendations if you'd like yeah, to. Yeah, totally. If you want to watch a specific movie with us, you can... Give us a shout out on Patreon. We got some good recommendations from a, a Patreon member. I think it was Christine. Yes, indeed, it was Christine yep. Asher. She yes. had some good movies. She had some great movie recommendations. Some of them I would love to do sooner than later. We'll check those out in the future. But yeah, give us uh, check out our Patreon and support us if you can. I know right now everybody like if you got two nickels to rub together, you know, hold on to them. So. Thank you so much if you have an extra couple to throw our We appreciate way. it a lot. We really appreciate it. But it's all going directly into us keeping this equipment functioning, keeping our internet speeds going at a rate that can, you know, get people on Skype calls and FaceTime calls and everything that we need to do to have guests every week for you and um, keeping the show on the air. So, yeah, keep doing that. And we would also love it if you would 
rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps with those iTunes metrics. Yes, indeed. It helps a lot. Uh, we want to get on New and Noteworthy. We want to get on the film reviews page. We want to get on all that. And that directly contributes to that. If you give us a five-star rating and if you write us a review. So go ahead and do that on Apple Podcasts. And while you're at it, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at mtmugpod on Twitter and Movies That Made Us Gay on Facebook and Instagram. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So go out and check us out. Look us up. Plenty of new episodes coming your way. Scott, do we have anything else before we go off with this last clip? I don't think so. I think you're right. I think it's time to say goodnight for the evening. We will leave you with Norma. With Norma. I can't go on with the scene. I'm too happy. Mr. DeMille, do you mind if I say a few words? Thank you. I just want to tell you all how happy I am to be back in the studio making a picture again. You don't know how much I've missed all of you. And I promise you I'll never desert you again. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Thank you.